Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Thursday, March 10th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Baseball is back. But baseball is actually pretty far gone, isn't it? The most interesting thing about baseball, the thing that I hear most people talking about when they talk about baseball is how people aren't talking about baseball. The most interesting thing about it is that it's just not interesting. It did get that title, the national pastime, but it just clearly isn't. And for people of a certain age who think that it should be, they're losing the argument. They're losing fans. And for a younger generation, I don't even know what they think of baseball. Something their dads liked or something their father's fathers liked. And in between, maybe their father tried to put up a brave face and throw a ball in the yard. Baseball is still really important culturally, not as the actual game that is played, but for phrases. Things like a home run of an idea or when you go to a meeting and try to get people to agree with you, you might have struck out on that pitch. That's from baseball. It's popular because it was once popular, and it made sense why 130 years ago people would be attracted to baseball, different society, different pace. At the time, the biggest outdoor sport was horse racing because we were an agricultural society. Cut to in the early part of the 20th century, it was unclear if baseball or bicycle racing indoors would become the main national pastime. But baseball got a cleat hold in to the cultural consciousness, and it never really went away. When TVs were grainy and radios were dominant, baseball was a pretty good sport. When there were no other cultural entertainments that offered quick twitch muscle satisfaction, baseball filled that need. But now that the pace of society and the demands of the consumer have changed, baseball just can't keep up. But I do wonder about baseball. I mean, it's odd. Korean culture, it's not slow, it's fast, it's technological, and baseball is incredibly popular there, and it's not getting less popular. Baseball is one of the three major team sports in the U.S., and I think why it's fading is that it doesn't deliver what the other two main sports do. So football is something like the perfect visual spectacle A, but also the nearly perfect metaphor for America, for good or ill. And basketball has a really interesting niche because basketball is a drama and has become a drama about individuals. These people who we know who temporarily band together and then disband. Fans love basketball in this way. The hundredth most popular basketball player is someone whose personality, quirks, likes and dislikes are well known to fans of the game. They follow them on social media. They empathize or have an opinion when Chris Middleton shoots a nasty look to Miles Bridges. I'm just intentionally naming some players who could be considered somewhere between the 50th and 100th best basketball players. They all invoke kind of passionate responses. The best baseball player in the world, Mike Trout, inspires almost nothing unless you're a fan of the California Angels and you're really glad that that guy is on your team generating excellent statistics. But he's unknown and seemingly unknowable. The 10th best baseball player in the world, I don't know, take your pick, Marcus Simeon, Austin Riley, uh, how about Aaron Judge? I mean, 
you've probably never heard the names if you don't follow baseball. I know the names. I just don't know anything about them. I live in New York. I know that Aaron Judge is tall. And I, I once read that he was adopted. I know absolutely nothing else about Aaron Judge as a person. I'm not picking on random, bland baseball players. I'm just saying baseball is not a sport that emphasizes the personality of the players. It could. Every person has a personality. There's no reason to argue that Paul Goldschmidt is any less interesting or personable as a person than Clay Thomas, but everyone who follows basketball knows a lot about Clay Thomas, and everyone who follows baseball knows that Paul Schmidt's a good baseball player, not much else. Because baseball is still trying to be a sport where the people on the team represent the towns. Baseball players aren't followed individually. I'll give you an example. There was a player named Daniel Murphy who played for the Mets. He then went to play for the Washington Nationals. I know of no fan who followed Daniel Murphy and still liked him when he switched teams because people like baseball are fans of teams. People like the Mets are fans of the Mets. There was a guy named Max Scherzer who pitched well for the Nationals. Mets fans didn't like him. Now that he's on the Mets, Mets fans are rooting for him and national fans will not be shedding a tear when Scherzer first pitches for the blue and orange. It's team sport in an era when that entire concept has been changed turned on its head, and the players have become brands. It's not me bemoaning anything about the past, just me diagnosing where baseball is. Personally, I love baseball for its inefficiencies. I like baseball for the sheer tonnage of baseball. It's probably the leisure activity I watch, which affects my heart rate the least. If you strapped on the galvanic skin response, you'd get the least response from baseball. And yet, I am still drinking it in many, many hours a week. I'm glad that baseball's quote-unquote back, but it's never really coming back. But I also don't think it's going away. If it's the national sport or the national pastime, that's not because baseball captivates the nation, but in a way it is somewhat reflective of the republic in that it seems like another one of these vestigial institutions that we certainly wouldn't have invented yesterday if we had the choice, but we're not quite ready to discard tomorrow. On the show today, I spiel about a young up-and-comer who I hope and predict will soon be a go-and-get-outer, Madison Cawthorn. But first, Brad Meltzer is the author of 12 New York Times bestsellers. He's the host of Brad Meltzer's Lost History and Brad Meltzer's Decoded. I guess he's the host and title character of those TV shows. He has dozens of children's books. He's written all the big comic books, but he's really a master of the thriller. His latest is called the lightning rod, and it brings him by to discuss methods and meanings in delivering bound thrills. Brad Meltzer is the author of a dozen New York Times bestsellers. He also hosts TV shows about historic mysteries, has a line of kids' books, and has authored most of the great DC superhero titles. Three years ago, he came out with a book called The Escape Artist. It introduced two characters, Nola Brown, the Army's artist-in-residence, and Zig, who is the first mortician hero in literary history. Meltzer is out with the next book in the Zig and Nola series, it's called The Lightning Rod. First sentence in the first book, these were the last 32 seconds of Nola's life. First sentence in this book, 
These were the last 14 minutes of his life. Boom, hooked. Brad, I'm not even going to say hello. I'm just going to say, you got me. I need to know what comes next. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I, this is my 25th anniversary as a published author. And when I was writing in 1997, my first book, The Tenth Justice, the hook for the book is at something like page 40. That's where like the real twist comes. And you go, oh, there's the plot. And the truth is, as a reader myself, and as someone who writes, like we have no patience for page 40 anymore. It's like grab me in the first chapter or, you know, in this case, lightning rod is grab me in the first sentence. Now, I will say I'm a snob when it comes to you can't just fill me with empty adrenaline. Like when I go see one of the action movies, it's just like action, action, action. It just feels so empty. I don't care. So I'll give you that first sentence. But the next two pages after that are teaching you about Nola as a character or teaching you about my valet as a character. Like the best plot is always a good character, period. Right. And those movies that do feed the adrenaline with a movie, with writing, it's uh, you're able to do that. But with a movie, we, of course, you know, our limbic systems act a little bit differently. So you could do quick cuts and you could do, you know, a blurry sword through a skull. But if you don't do the thing where you pull back and orient the viewer, they are going to be lost. You know, it quickly, the adrenaline of that fades. And if they don't understand what the literally in the case of a movie, the bigger picture is, it's not going to connect. And it's clear that as a writer, you know that too. Yeah, no, listen. And again, I think there are some people who just love a good fight. That's all they care about. They don't care about the subtext. They don't care if it says anything about the human condition. They don't care about any of it. They just show me the car chase. Rev an engine and I will be there. That's just not me. I just don't care. Like, I need to care about the character. If you have a good character, I can do anything with them. You'll watch them tie their shoe. You know, whether it's, for you, whether it's you know Harry Potter or Scout or anyone you've loved, you will watch them do nothing if you love them as a character. And to me, that's the test. Is you know, it's funny in in the Escape Artist and and even in in the Lightning Rod, people have told me, oh, my favorite scene is this one. My son, who's actually twenty years old, he picked up the Lightning Rod and it terrified me, right? Because they're going to give me all these reviews, but when your kid picks it up and says, okay, I'm going to check it in. I was crapping my pants because I'm like, oh no, what's he going to think? And he came back after the first chapter. He's like, good start, dad. I'm like, okay. But he just told me he's got 50 pages to go, but his favorite scenes are not the, he's like, I don't like the action scenes as much as I like the flashback scenes when she's young. He's like, those are my favorite scenes. There's nothing happening there except the character build. And I'm like, I, I don't know if that's, you know, nature or nurture, but I'm taking pride that my kid has taste. Yeah, and I also sense that you relished writing those flashback scenes where, and, and they are, they're the most um, disturbing stuff that you've ever written from, uh, you know, a hard, hard to sit with it. Some of the stuff that you're, some of the character traits, some of what Nola has been through. It's not a typical Brad Meltzer uh, ripping good yarn. Yeah, I mean, you know, I always go, I go with my own fears, right? The opening scene of The Lightning Rod is one of my greatest fears come true. It's it's when you hand your keys over to the valet at the parking lot. And in the scene, the character hands his valet the keys and the valet, instead of parking the car, goes and hits the GPS button and says, go home. And now the valet is driving to the guy's home. The guy's in the restaurant gone. He's got the guy's keys to his car, keys to his house, and this is a robbery. And then he gets into the house and he sees someone's waiting for him with a gun. And this isn't a robbery at all. This is a trap. And soon the body goes to our hero, Zig. They find these great government secrets. 
but it begs the question of what are the secrets no one knows about you? And I just ruined chapter one of The Lightning Rod, but to me, like I go with those fears and those flashback scenes are my childhood fears come true. They're absolutely, and some of them are partially things that happened to me. Some of them from my, from my elementary school years, friends will write to me and say, I know that moment. Um, and they're, and I know that they are, um, they, they get to the core of Nola's character, but they're the most real to me. They're the one, like, as my, as my kid said to me, those are the ones that feel the most like they can happen. And that's why they get to me. You've written a lot of historical fiction and just uh, histories, but it does seem to me, and this is going to be true of the historical fiction as well, that thrillers and technology always interrelate. And there's a reason why James Bond always has the gadget sequence. So as you said, the thing that was that enabled this parking attendant to try to execute a robbery is that we're also cavalier about just putting our home address on our GPS. Think about it. That means everyone who ever has driven your car knows where you live. That is taking a technology in the present, twisting it a little bit, and using it as both a plot device and uh, something that would give the reader anxiety. And to me, it seems like so many thrillers depend on that. Yours do, even the one set in the 1800s. Listen, the, the, I did my first thriller, The Tenth Justice, has a key plot point that takes place when they go to and have to develop pictures of the photomat. That is just doesn't exist anymore, right? It doesn't, it doesn't last, it doesn't hold. So you gotta find a new thing. And and basically every plot from the 80s and 90s can be undone with a cell phone. You give put a cell phone in any one of our old books, movies, anything, it's all undone. Just you just look it up, Google it, you'll find the person, it's fine. But we obviously are in a new mousetrap, so why not build a better one? So one of the things I did in the book in the Lightning Rod is I was obsessed with, you know, how do you talk to someone um, where the government can't see you, right? We all know that everything we put in our phones, everything's one day could come out easily and be, and be put around. So I went to my, I go to these people who work at these acronym agencies in the government. And I said, what do you do? And they told me, they said, listen, here's what you do. If you send anything, it's going to be tracked. And we all know everyone's got WhatsApp. Everyone's got signal. Encryption could be cracked. Here's what you do. Get a Hotmail account. On the Hotmail account, you're going to write an, an email to Mike. Don't send it. Just hit save draft. Then you go to Mike and you give him your Hotmail login. He logs in the Hotmail. He opens up save drafts. He reads what you wrote him. He deletes it, writes you back, hits save draft again. You guys have not sent a single thing to anyone and you've communicated. And I've said, that's brilliant. Until General Petraeus, who was in charge of the CIA, was caught cheating on his wife using that trick that they gave me from there. And I wrote, I'm literally, I'm like, guys, that's the one you gave me. And they're like, I know, we'll give you a better one. So the better <laughs> one, they, the better one they gave me, I put in the lightning rod. The one you read about, I won't ruin it, but the one you read about in there that they do um, is absolutely based on reality. And it's based on trying to always one up what's out there because I can't just, you know, when I was younger, I had a scene where someone hits like, you know, what was it, star six nine, and you could figure out who caller ID'd you, and that seemed like you were cracking the code. I felt like I was, you know, Q and and himself, and and now you got to do better. And so I just go to my top military and and government people in, in those acronym agencies, and I'm like, what's the best you got? And tell me what you have. Don't tell me what exists. Tell me what's going to exist. And that's always the best stuff. So I don't know if this is a flat out rule, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was a rule that you impose on yourself. There are portions of the book where something 
um, perhaps implausible happens. And in fact, I would guess, knowing the research that you do and how you approach this, if you list, okay, what were the three most implausible things, devices, techniques, all of them are real. Like, I, th- I am guessing that you have this rule where if something seems impossible, it actually has to be possible. Like, say, someone swallowing a note so that upon death, their cadaver can uh, transmit the note to someone who's looking inside their body. That, that was my favorite one, and it came – so I was at Dover Air Force Base. These books take place with a mortician because I'm obsessed with death. And the mortician I, – I, I said to the morticians at Dover, which is where our, our fallen soldiers, our fallen troops go when they die in battle. It's also where our CIA people go, our, our James Bonds around the globe. If they die on a mission, their bodies go to Dover too. It's the government's secret and most amazing funeral home. And so it's a place that's filled with secrets. I was like, I'm obsessed. I got to know what's going on there. So I go there and I meet these, the people who are the morticians there. And I said, I want to have a secret like message that someone can have on their body, like a tattoo or something in their pockets. Like what's the best way you have? You must've seen something in all these years that'll show you how to transmit a secret message. And they said to me, if you're on a plane and your plane's about to crash and you write a note and you eat it, that the liquids in your stomach depending on the height you come from, will potentially protect the note upon the crash. And I said, that's a great idea. And they said to me, that's not an idea. It really happened. And I was like, I got it. And again, that, that, that I just ruined chapter one, but like there's chapter one of the escape artist. Like that's of the first book. Like that's, and, and I 100% real. The scene at the end of the lightning rod um, in terms of what explodes, I won't say where or when or how, that is based absolutely on a real explosion, a real place. In fact, while I was writing it, that big explosion happened and happened in a similar way from the same reason. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I'm researching right now. So even down to the um, down to the government warehouse, I mean, I, I found out, and you know, I love government secrets. I've done the tunnels below the White House. I've done this, the labyrinth below the Capitol. I've even done the little city below Disney World that they have. But I found out that the government has a dozen top secret warehouses that house all of our antidotes for bioterrorist attacks, whether it's like SARS or hantavirus, or they did Ebola in 2014, Zika in 2016, of course, COVID now. But these warehouses are hidden in plain sight. If you're in a big city, it's somewhere near you so that if you know someone catches Ebola, that within a couple hours, we can put a push package right to you, whether you're in the Pacific Northwest, you're in the Northeast, whether you're in the Midwest, you're in Florida, wherever you are, We've got a dozen secret warehouses. You won't believe where they're hidden. And I'm like, oh, I need to know where they're hidden. I need to know exactly where they are. Now, I switched the location in the book for security purposes. But what you see inside those warehouses, what you see at the end of the book, that is absolutely real. So am I right? The more fantastical a plot point, the more that you've documented that it can be true. I have. Yeah, I remember my, one of my favorite ones is there's a scene where I did this in book years ago, but it was one of those details that I was like, I don't believe it, but I need to use it because it's real. Um, I asked cops, where do you find guns? If you were running through a neighborhood, where would you find a gun? They said, go to a bad neighborhood and go to a Burger King or McDonald's and go in the bathroom and, and push the ceiling in the, in the ceiling tiles. I said, what are you talking about? They're like, push the ceiling in the ceiling tiles. It's the best place to hide anything. People go into fast food restaurants, they hide in the ceiling tiles. I, I can't make that detail up. It seems so crazy and unlikely, but there's something in your back of your brain, the reptilian part of your brain that knows truth when they have it. And that just seems so crazy that you know it's true.
So, Brad, are you a conspiracy theorist or a conspiracy realist? No, I'm definitely not a theorist. Like, you know, it's funny. We've taken that word conspiracy theorist and, and it's become synonymous with lunatic, as it rightfully should these days. And I, and I do feel like this, I feel like an odd responsibility because I've made my living in kind of attacking and going after conspiracies. But I hope what we've always done is try and find the truth. I remember when we did our first show on the History Channel, they had written this script for me and it said like, the Freemasons are after the team and I'm worried that they're gonna die. And I'm like, no, they're not, this is nonsense. I said, I'm not saying this. And to the History Channel, they, they said, well, what do you wanna say? And I said, I wanna tell the truth. And to their credit, they said, well, go do it. And, and so at the end of every episode, I was like, I know that these Freemasons are not taking over the world and stealing your baby and taking your car right now. I know what's happening. I have a whole crew of people here like, and they told me back then that the, the less facts you have, the more scary music you play. And I was like, I never want to do that show. And, and we had our set of scary music, of course, but like, I never want to do that show. But I do think that the hardest thing to find today, you know, we have more access to information than the Library of Alexandria in our pockets every single day. But the hardest thing to find sometimes is the truth. And I think, you know, as we know, half of the country doesn't want to believe the truth either. And if you make a choice that you're just not going to accept it, no matter what the facts is, I just saw this great meme. It said it was a headstone and the headstone said, I did my own research. And I was like, that is friggin' brilliant. That's where we are today. And so I think the, the reset we have to have is trying to convince people the difference between what a conspiracy theory is and what an actual conspiracy is. And those are two different things. Brad Meltzer is the author of so many New York Times bestsellers. It started with The 10th Justice, and the latest is The Lightning Rod, a Zig and Nola novel. As always, Brad, thanks. Thanks so much. You got it, brother. Thank you. And now the spiel. Madison Cawthorn, freshman representative from North Carolina, although he seems like an upperclassman on the varsity troll team, is in the news for driving with a revoke license. But that's not why I want to talk about him. That's just the top layer of Cawthorn news that I don't really care about, except as an excavatory inconvenience. Let us get down to the next layer. The congressman, who recently predicted that all these stolen elections could only end in bloodshed, said this about the war in Ukraine. Remember that Zelensky is a bum. Remember that the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and it is incredibly evil and it has been pushing woke ideologies. He called Zelensky a thug. I don't care if you have a sound critique for even the hero of the moment, but this is not a sound critique. This is a baseless comment that displays a characteristic of Cawthorn's life as a public servant. So Cawthorn makes stupid incendiary, meritless comments, which is the business model of the bizarro squad of Bobert, Taylor Green, Cawthorn, but also the 3G network of Gates, Goser, and Gomert. But Cawthorn's statements are often the types of utterances that don't even help him with his perceived base. All of the Republicans I mentioned are in districts where a Democrat simply cannot win. 
The perception, it's probably correct, is that no elected representative who's a conservative from these districts will ever hurt himself or herself if they are consistently hard right, anti-woke, anti-mask, pro-gun, pro-Trump. Most of the shenanigans of Boebert and Taylor Greene, like say screaming at Joe Biden during the State of the Union, they're actually, sadly enough, on brand and they tick some sort of anti-woke, pro-Trump box. But Cawthorn repeatedly stumbles. Basically, he's not very good at this. He's been caught out in lies before and not helpful lies. I mean, the big lie, can't say that enough if you're one of these types of figures, but he lied about being invited to attend the Naval Academy before his accident. He lied about being offered a chance to be in the Paralympics afterwards. Those kinds of lies don't naturally endear him to the right. He says this anti-Zelensky stuff, which just isn't where even most conservative Republicans are. And by most, I mean where the vast majority of conservative Republicans are not. And I mean that even about the voters of North Carolina's 11th congressional district. If they hear about this, they are not going to like it. For all their flaws, Marjorie Taylor Greene did run a CrossFit gym. Lauren Boebert did own a restaurant. Cawthorn's really done nothing. He has a square jawline and a sympathetic story, having suffered an accident that caused him to use a wheelchair. But again, he's not good at this. Now, I'll acknowledge, I'm going to make a prediction, but it's not necessarily for the next election cycle. It's a terrible time to predict that any incumbent Republican is going to lose an extremely safe seat. But I'm going to reiterate a call that I made just days after Cawthorn was sworn in in 2021. He is not long for elected politics. He lacks the skills. He lacks even the demagoguery skills. Those skills would keep him safely in office, as I think they will Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Don't misunderstand me. I am not saying this guy is going to be undone because his demagoguery is blatant. It's dangerous. It's a threat to democracy. It, it is. It's all those things, but more important to Cawthorn's chances of staying in office is his demagoguery is just bad. Madison Cawthorn is a D-minus demagogue. He attacks the wrong targets and he courts controversies that don't rally his base. They just make voters say, I don't know, I don't see how going 89 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone, and then later 87 miles per hour in a 70 miles per hour zone, and then driving on a revoke license. I don't see how that owns the libs. How does that own the libs? I don't see how calling Zelensky a thug sticks it to Nancy Pelosi. There was a recent effort to disqualify Cawthorn from holding office on the theory that his encouragement of the January 6th protests, more than encouragement, he spoke at the rally that day, that it constitutes having taken an oath against the country. The suit was thrown out, which I think was probably proper. Of course, you can tell, I also think that it's proper for Cawthorn to be voted out. Right and proper things certainly have a habit of not happening in US politics, but this one, I think, has a chance. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is our NFT coordinator and fulfillment center director. NFTs, oh yes, let us talk about the Lobstar NFTs. These were sent to you as the Lobstar 
of the Antan Twig by signing up for the Gist's newsletter. We've gotten a lot of messages. Am I doing it right? When will I get it? Yes, I think you are. We think you are doing it right. Uh, we will be distributing the NFTs to your wallets within a couple of weeks. So hang in there. <laughs> a watched lobster will not boil. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.